Romans chapter uh, six, or chapter nine, verse six. Excuse me, chapter nine, verse six through thirteen. I had outlined uh, a, a a broad outline of these three chapters, and I, uh, Lord willing, hope to follow that in the sermons to come. Chapter nine, verses six through thirteen, comprising one section. 14 through 18, another, and so on. So looking now at what Paul says, the Apostle Paul in chapter 9, verse 6 of the book of Romans, hear the word of God, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And let us pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge to you, O Lord, that it is filled with many difficulties, and uh, especially this this Apostle Paul, as Peter says, says things which uh, some find difficult and difficult to understand. Others uh, are evil enough to twist them to their own destruction and those of their hearers. Well, Lord, if ever the danger presented itself to us, it is here in Romans chapter 11, where the doctrine of election or predestination is set before us with such force and such integrity, Lord, we ask you that we might humbly sit under your word and to learn of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have here in verse 6 of chapter 9 is in reality the beginning of the argument. In chapter 9, verses One through five, in reality, are just the introduction. Paul is telling us how he feels, and he tells us who he's talking about. Uh, But here in in chapter nine, verse six, we have uh, a clear indication of of the argument beginning. And uh, and in that argument, an argument, by the way, which which unfolds for three chapters. You can't take chapter nine on its own. You can't say, well, chapter nine is the great chapter about predestination. It isn't. What Paul is dealing with in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is all the same, and it's the question of whatever happened to Israel, the story of the whole of the Old Testament, what now has become of those people. And it is in the context of that discussion that Paul uh, raises the issue of election and predestination, as we'll see. Well, as we look at this argument that he is beginning, as I'm saying, uh, we find three main points, and the first uh, we find uh, right off the bat, and, and we, we see this as Paul's characteristic method. He likes to a- ask questions, and in asking them, sometimes he answers them, sometimes he doesn't. But, but uh, in either case, whether it's a rhetorical question or a question that he answers, he is always forcefully rebutting an objection to the teaching. You see, he asks this question, uh, well, I suppose it isn't a question, he says, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. I, I, I guess in my outline, I wrote the question, has, has God's word failed? That's not a question, though. You see, that's a statement. I was mistaken. 
It's not that the word of God has taken no effect. We could put that in the form of, of a question. Has the word of God failed? And his answer is the first principle is that it's not. God's word has not failed. Before he gets to any discussion of spiritual Israel versus natural Israel or, uh, or the, the, the doctrine of election, this is the first thing he wants to be clear about. He says, you know, I'm talking to you about God's word. That's what I've been talking about for these past five verses. I'm talking about the people who are described in the Old Testament, the people whom God was speaking to all of those years. My subject is God's word. And my assertion is that it has not failed or, uh, according to the New King James, has taken no effect. It's not taken no effect, though I prefer the translation. It hasn't failed. Well, well, you see, he's talking about, as I say, what he's been speaking of in verses 1 through 5, Israel. God's word of promise to them in the Old Testament contrasted to their current standing outside the church. What then of them? You see, another way to ask that question is, what then of God's word to them? Has God's word failed? And simply put, Paul is telling us that however intense his feelings of remorse, however intensely he longs presently for uh, their salvation, that is his fellow countrymen according to the flesh, however intense his desire is for Israel's salvation, God's word has indeed not failed. That is not what he is suggesting. His frustration at the present situation is not a frustration with God. It is not a disappointment or a discouragement or a lack of faith in God's word. He longs for the salvation of his countrymen, as indeed we might. But his confidence in God's word, on the other hand, is as strong as ever. And the way in which this is true will appear in a moment. But do you see, let me just notice at the beginning, how both feelings might appear or occur in the same heart at the same time. And both with equal intensity. You see, Paul is no less intense in his feelings here. He has at once an intense feeling of longing. He has these intense pangs of heart for the loss. It's a continual sorrow and grief, a burden which weighs heavily upon his heart. And at the same time, a complete, an intense, an overwhelming confidence in God's word. Both things together at the same time. Well, you might say, now that's not possible. The man who says, uh, what is happening, just to use a modern example, with America what has happened to our nation? How I long to see people flocking into the churches. How I long to see reformation in the church. As Luther and Calvin did and as they saw in their own day. You see, to say that is not to express frustration with God's plan or disappointment in his word. Both feelings might exist in the same heart with an equal intensity of desire and confidence. That's what I'm saying. Because, well, I say it on on, on the grounds of the Apostle Paul himself, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do you know anything of these seemingly competing desires at, at work in your own heart, only to realize, because of your confidence in God's word, there is, there is no competition, there is no conflict. 
But the important principle that Paul is stating here, the thing that we need to be sure about before I say the first word about election or predestination or or another word about Israel, is that God's word cannot fail. The church has to be sure of that. And if ever it seems that it has to us, if ever we are tempted to believe with our present frustration with the state of affairs, whether in America or Israel or wherever, then we need to do as Paul does here and examine once more the promise as well as the facts that seem to counter it. What has God said? What is the current state of affairs? And soon, if we are honest and if we are fair, it will appear to us, as it appeared to Paul, that there is no contradiction at all. The present state of unbelief of whatever group you choose and the promise of God. No true examination of any set of facts in history will ever lead us to conclude that God's word has failed or that it's fallen to the ground. And that tells us that if ever our position is that, well, it seems after all that God's word has failed, or at least if we are tempted somehow to believe that, given the state of affairs, then we can be sure that our position is false. That is the first thing. That's where we have to begin. There isn't anything, there isn't even the slightest trace of anything anywhere, ever, that gave us this sense. And if it does give us this sense, it's because we're wrong. But then having stated that, we come to the next assertion. The first being that God's word has not failed. No, not with respect to Israel, not with respect to anything or anyone ever. Beginning there, he tells us what is true of God's word as well as what is true with respect to Israel. He examines the promise. He examines the facts. Again, what I'm saying we must do. And so that leads to the second point, And that is, as he says in verse six, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. By the way, Paul makes three doctrinal assertions in this passage. Verse six, he makes two. And then in verse 11, he makes the third. And so in verse six B, we have the second assertion. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. He goes on. Nor, he says, are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, verse 7, which is just to make the same exact point in different words. Again, he says, the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, verse 8. No, rather, the children of promise are counted as the true seed of Abraham, verse 8. Again, Paul is only saying what he said earlier in chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. In fact, he states the case so strongly, it leads him to say, what advantage then has the Jew? And he he goes on to say much in every way. Nevertheless, he says the true Jew as he, as, as he states here in chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, the true son or seed of Abraham is he who comes uh, not by the flesh but by the promise. We can think of other places in Scripture where this is said, just two in particular. 
Luke chapter 3, or any of the discourses uh, we have at the beginning of the Gospels between John the Baptist and the Pharisees, and John says uh, something uh, which is very striking. It, it resembles what Paul is saying here. He says, uh, do, not, do not presume that because uh, you are the sons of Abraham, something like that, that you are safe, that you do not stand in need of repentance. Luke chapter 3, verse 18. Again, John chapter 8, Jesus speaking essentially to the same crowd. They say, Abraham was our father. He says, if Abraham were your father, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works that Abraham did. Well, this is an important distinction. Paul summarizes this distinction, which is stated over and over again in this way. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. And the point he is making concerns the spiritual seed. The word of promise concerned the true spiritual seed. The elect, he will call them in chapter 11. And that is something Paul is saying, as he likes to do, that was always true. This is not a new phenomenon. This is something that you will find throughout the New Testament. True Israel consists of the true sons of Abraham. You say, well, does that include all the sons of Abraham? And Paul says, well, you tell me, look at the history of Israel and what do you see? Open your Bibles, open your Old Testament. Who are the true sons of Abraham? And the answer is his true spiritual heirs, his descendants. The spiritual seed are the true children. They only are the heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Israel in the truest sense. You see, Paul is saying there is Israel, then there's Israel. Israel in the truest sense of the word, or as Jesus says to Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed. Well, who are the Israelites indeed? It is the answer is the spiritual sons, not the natural sons. Paul says something similar in uh, Romans chapter four. He says in verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith, he's speaking of Abraham and his children, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all his seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's very clearly saying that the children of Abraham belong to Israel, yes, those according to law, but also those who share his faith outside of Israel, who are his true children. Well, Romans chapter 4, the promise is according to grace. It has to do with grace, not with nature. Those who have the faith of Abraham, those are his true sons. It was to them that the promises were not only made, but realized. And so the doctrine which is set forth here is the doctrine of the remnant. The doctrine of the remnant. More fully elaborated in chapter 11, this is what he says. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Verse 2 God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Even so, verse 5, at the time there is a remnant according to the election of grace, even as there was, he says, in Elijah's day. It's the same thought here. There is within natural Israel a remnant of true believers. And that has always been the case. And so that leads us to the conclusion That God has not forsaken his people. He has always remembered them by maintaining a remnant among them. And that is evident already in the case of Abraham's two sons. 
You go back as far as you like to the very beginnings of this nation or this family or this people. Abraham himself, the father of them all. And you see that it was evident even in his own case, the case of his two sons. You see, the first son that he had was Ishmael, not Isaac. Ishmael descended from Abraham by nature. And yet how clear it is in the case of Abraham's firstborn son, that natural descent, even from Abraham's own body, was not determinative or was not ultimate. It did not automatically make one Israel in the truest sense. A man might spring from, from Abraham himself and yet not be Israel. Ishmael was not Israel. What was determinative or what was productive of Israel was God's word of promise solely. And so we might look at it like this. Nature alone produced Ishmael. But grace or the promise produced Isaac. Ishmael was not Israel. Isaac was. And the promise concerned Isaac alone. Nor are they all children, verse 7, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So too, verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come to Sarah. Uh, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And so this supports the first point. God's word concerning Israel, his promise in the Old Testament, has not failed because those promises only ever concerned the true spiritual seed of Abraham. No one else. They concern not Ishmael, but Isaac. Already God was making this distinction in Abraham himself and his sons. And so it should be obvious already. Going back to the very beginning, that God never promised that every individual member of this family would be saved. How could anyone think that, given that this was not even true in the case of Abraham's own sons? The promise concerned Isaac, not Ishmael. Already there was this distinction in the promise itself. And that tells us that if even today some of Abraham's or uh, the vast many of Abraham's natural sons stand outside, does that indicate somehow that God's word is failing? Has it fallen to the ground? Obviously not, for that has always been the case. There's always been a remnant according to grace within this natural family, and only they ever deserved to be called the true sons. Only they were the recipients and the product of the promise, no one else. But that leads to a third point, which we find in verse 11. And that is that the purpose of God according to election might or will stand. The middle or the end of that verse, he says that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That's, that's the third point. The word of God has not failed. One, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Two, and three, the purpose of God according to election Cannot fail. This is another key assertion. We have arrived now at the doctrine of election. And this is key to the whole argument, both before and after. If we go back to chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 28, we find, uh, we find an idea that is being elaborated here. And it is the idea of God's purpose. 
Not just the idea, but the word. Those who are called according to his purpose. You see, in verse 6, it was God's word cannot fail. Now in verse 11, it's God's purpose. He's just elaborating on that same idea. The purpose and the word are very similar. Obviously, uh, the word is the statement of the purpose, but it's, it's a little bit differently. The word is what he says. The purpose is his will that was formed in his heart from all eternity. And the question is, can that will of God ever be frustrated or ever be thwarted? Is Israel today, by her unbelief, undoing God's eternal purpose concerning her? And God, uh, God's answer through Paul is, no, certainly not. His purpose will always stand. It cannot fall. And this is something, as I say, which he states both before and after. He, he goes on from chapter 9, verse 14. That's the next se- section to consider his great purpose in election. Nothing, uh, if you like, can take God's purpose and knock it over and cause it to fall on the ground. It will always, always, always stand upright. And however much it seems that things are, uh, that forces rather, are working against that purpose, Nevertheless, the confidence of believers is that his purpose will always, always stand. And just as we are confident that his word can never fail. But how does that purpose, uh, if I could put it this way, achieve its purpose? How is it that God sees to it that it stands always? And Paul's answer is, according to election. That's how God achieves his eternal purpose. It's according to election. And he qualifies this uh, both negatively and positively. First, he says, not of works. God does not achieve his purpose according to election by works. In other words, once more, we find the common idea that the human element is excluded entirely. Election proceeds according to grace. Didn't he say that in chapter five, uh, chapter 11, verse five? Even so, then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Not works, but grace. How does God achieve his purpose, his eternal purpose, determined for all time? The answer is not by what man does. The human element is excluded. The divine element is magnified entirely. We might notice, uh, just as an aside... But in emphasizing uh, the keynote of election, which is grace itself, how consistently the whole scheme of salvation is presented in Paul. In other words, the doctrine of election fits perfectly with the doctrine of justification. Do you see how the, the refrain not of works applies equally to both? What Paul is saying is that God achieves his purpose. Not by what we do, but by what he does. In calling us, in justifying us, and so on. And so it's very natural to speak of election and justification in the same way. Why? Because it's the same purpose. It's the same salvation. It's the same God who is working. No, it's not of works, but it's of him who calls, Paul says. There's a strong parallel once again to what he said earlier in chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he he foreknew, he also predestined. And whom he predestined, these he also called. Election and calling are brought together once more. What Paul is saying is that God's purpose in election formed in eternity is realized not when, uh, well, God realizes we were such good people. And he says, you know, that's 
that I knew he was such a good guy. That's why I decided I was going to save him. That, that, you see, that is excluded entirely. To speak of the call of God, to say uh, the purpose according to election is realized not by our works, but of him who calls us to say that his call is the moment his purpose formed in eternity is, uh, eternity is realized. The moment God calls a sinner from darkness into light, whether that sinner is Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or you or me, is the moment that his purpose, according to election, is seen to stand, is seen to be effective. We speak of the effectual call. It is not a matter of works. It is a matter of God. It is not a matter of me. It's a matter of him who calls. And so when God, when God calls a sinner to himself, it's not because of what he foresaw in that sinner. We're going to see that in a moment. It isn't because of the worth of this particular person in contrast to the other. That's not what you see in the choice of God. What you see, what is highlighted, what stands supreme is the sovereignty of God, which is something that is eternal. Or to use the language of Paul, it is, it is his purpose according to election along what lines does salvation proceed through all of history beginning with abraham it proceeds along the lines of election which is the principle of grace not of works and so look at another example we've looked at the example of abraham now look at his son in whom the promise was fulfilled isaac and look at his two sons go along with abraham abraham's family a little bit uh, this is verses 10 through 13. And there's two things that make his case to differ from that of Abraham. The first is that both sons came from the same woman. Paul is highlighting this. He says, when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, even by our father Isaac. In other words, you see Ishmael and Isaac came from different mothers. Perhaps you could highlight that fact and say, you know, that really was the difference between them. Paul says, okay, well, what about Isaac and Rebekah? The, the, these, both of the sons came from the same woman. Not only that, but they were conceived at the same time. They lived in her womb for those nine months and were born at the same time, though if nature was to give preference to, another, it, uh, to one over the other, it was Esau, not Jacob. You see, the natural element here is more prominent. It, 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 it's more difficult, if not impossible, for the Jew to find the difference between these two in nature. It's the, the, the case of Jacob and Esau seem to favor uh, Paul's opponent's arguments. And yet, all the more, Paul says strongly, all the more strongly does it make my point. Since one was chosen and the other was not. Look at what he says. Try to follow the argument. He says, for the children not yet being born, God's purpose concerning these two boys was stated to Rebecca before either had done good or evil. Human works, Paul is saying, did not come in at all, nor did the natural order, for the older shall serve the younger. And Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Do you see what God is doing here? He's stating his disregard for the natural order, as well as the fact that one of the natural sons was rejected while the other was accepted. How clear it becomes, Paul says, in the case of Isaac, that God's purpose is realized not by natural descent, 
nor by a consideration of the good deeds either will do in the course of his life, but solely according to election. The choice is God's, and it is made before either man is born, not of works, nor of nature, but of him who calls. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Salvation proceeds, Paul proves, solely on the basis of God's choice. And that choice appears, he says, and we'll spend a good bit of time with this thought next time. So don't worry. It appears not only in the selection of some, Jacob I've loved, but in the rejection uh, of others. Esau, I have hated. Imagine that God said that of one of Abraham's own sons, his grandson Esau. Not only his choice of one, but his rejection of the other. That God should reject some of Abraham's natural sons proves the overall assertion as well as anything could. God's word has not failed. His purpose stands. It always has. It is a purpose which proceeds according to the election. It proceeds according to God's call. And that purpose cannot fail. All Abraham's true sons will be saved. Not one of them will be lost. And so to put very simply... What matters in salvation is not nature, it is grace. What matters in salvation is not natural descent, it is God's election. And if that was true of Abraham's sons, you can believe that it is true today with respect to those who still proceed from his line. Let me come to several points of application. Asking the question, what have we proved? Well, in the first place, let us return to the original thought and ask whether we've proved this point. And that is that God's word has not. Indeed, it cannot fail. You see, in everything that Paul is saying and everything that I'm saying, that needs to be uh, the bedrock, the foundational conviction of our hearts. And we need to see it. You see, Paul is concerned that we see it. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to see it. To look throughout history, even to look to our own age and our own day and to, and to have this conviction formed in our heart. To realize, no, indeed, the very things God said he would do, he has done and he's still doing. Well, I think we've proved that much at least. In the case of Abraham, then of Isaac, the promise, the purpose proceeds along the lines of grace and not of nature. Number two, we should see what confidence this gives us. An overwhelming confidence, not Simply in God's word, but in God's purpose in salvation. I'm, I'm always amazed at, 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 at the arguments that election somehow destroys a man's confidence when, well, if we under, ever understood what the doctrine actually meant, we would realize it is the ultimate foundation of a true assurance and a true, uh, a, a true confidence in our own salvation. Do you realize Paul is saying that God's purpose in salvation does not depend upon you? It never did. You can go back to eternity past when that purpose was formed in his heart. You can go back to the promise given to Abraham. Or you can think upon your own uh, conversion. Or the time that you've spent since then as salvation is being worked out in you. Have you realized by now that salvation does not depend upon you? And that if it did, that it would surely fall to the ground. Do you see what confidence this gives in that purpose? When God calls a sinner to himself, that purpose and that promise is absolutely assured to the sinner. 
And nothing can ever overturn that purpose in saving you. Number three, we should understand the nature of God's purpose in salvation. The natural factor is not excluded. That may surprise you, so let me say it again. The natural factor is not excluded. For Paul says that the spiritual comes out of the natural. The spiritual comes out of the natural, but the natural isn't everything. It doesn't determine who are the true sons. It only determines who might be. What matters, as Jesus tells Nicodemus, is not natural birth, but spiritual birth. And we must realize this in the case of our own children. This is an important truth for Presbyterians to consider. We must be careful or take care that we are not guilty of Israel's sin and Israel's folly. What matters, I say again, is not natural birth. That is not what determines who are the true sons, but spiritual birth. Only those born of the spirit or of the promise are God's true children. Verse eight. Those are not those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. Nature cannot produce this. Nature cannot produce salvation. Nature cannot produce the second birth. Only the promise of God can. Only the grace of God can. Only the call of God can. And that is what makes us true sons. The fallacy is to think this was the fallacy of Israel. And it is a fallacy which we might be given to at least implicitly. Is that because I have the natural I don't need the spiritual. And I'm speaking not to parents but to children. Well, you come from Christian parents, you're brought to church. Does that make you a Christian? No, it does not. What makes you a Christian is that you are called by God and that he has saved you. Having the natural gives you a great advantage. Paul is saying that he says it to the Jews. It gives them an advantage to this day. Having Christian parents gives you a great advantage. Might I even put it like this? It gives you uh, it, it makes it very likely that God will call you. And that you will be a Christian. But what makes you a Christian is that you've experienced the second birth. That you've been called according to the promise. It's also on this basis, by the way, we're looking at nations, we're looking at families. Let's look at the church for a moment. Do you understand the difference between the visible and the invisible church? You see, just because a man stands up and professes faith, does that make him a Christian? Well, consider Simon from Acts chapter 8. Did that make him a Christian? Clearly not. There is within the visible church a remnant of true believers, and so there will always be. Number four, this rules out boasting entirely. Salvation is not a matter of works. In other words, when I realize that God's purpose is accomplished according to election, I ask the question, why did he choose me? I'm aware that he chose me, but how did he do that? Was it because of what he foresaw in me? No, listen here, Paul says, not of works. Before either had done good or evil. He's speaking of Jacob and Esau. And if, if, you're, if you're saved, well, he's saying the same thing to you. Before you had done anything, good or bad, I chose you. I set my love upon you. God's purpose in election is formed and it is found in his own heart, not what he foresees in me. And that should humble me. That should not puff me up with pride. That should humble me if he has called me. Humble me to the dust. 
You see, by the way, in what his choice appears, it appears in his call. How do I know God has chosen me? Well, because he's called me. That's what Calvin says in the Institutes. He's called me and I've responded to it. He's made me a Christian. And if he's called me, then I may be sure of his choice of me. But you see, that should humble me. It should lead me to magnify his grace in choosing me. It shouldn't puff me up with pride. But then number five, as I close. I ask the question, what have we proved? What has this led to? Well, along with Martin Lloyd-Jones, I would say the true test of this exposition is to what does it lead? Does it lead someone to ask in verse 14, is there any unrighteousness with God? In presenting this truth, as I hope to elaborate more fully, not only God's choice of Jacob, but God's rejection of Esau. Has it led me to ask the question, Perhaps there is a a trace of unrighteousness in God. Well, if it hasn't led to that, or at least tempted us to think it, then I doubt I've stated the case as strongly as I ought to have. Do you see, Paul says, salvation is all of God, even in the case of Abraham's children, and so too in your own case. And as you ponder this truth, God's purpose according to election, Jacob I have loved Esau. I have hated. As I utter those words, is there even the slightest trace of resentment in your heart towards God? Do you find yourself asking, as Paul says, is there any unrighteousness with God? Well, allow me to come to that next in the sermon to come. For now, I say this as I close, because God's purpose is certain. I will boast in him and him alone, even as Paul says, for of him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be the glory forever. Amen.